Now, great to see you all, and uh, I want to invite you uh, this morning for our time of study in the Word to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Uh, Genesis chapter 38. We're, for those of you that are visiting with us this morning, we are doing a verse-by-verse series through uh, the book of Genesis, and as we continue in that series, uh, we come to uh, Genesis uh, 38. Um, we should have thought about chapters like this when we started our series through Genesis, uh, but we're going to encounter some things that are uncomfortable for us, but God's word is profitable uh, to us, and we are looking forward to the profit that we have to gain from this uh, chapter of, of Genesis. Last week, we Uh, finished off studying Genesis 37 in the narrative, and we had just seemingly got rolling with the story of Joseph. Uh, We saw how Joseph was hated by his brothers and and then sold by his brothers to some traders who then took him and sold him to Potiphar down in Egypt. Uh, But then this morning, we, we turned to Genesis 38, which contains nothing about Joseph, actually, which contains a series of episodes in the life of Judah, one of Jacob's sons. And then, starting in the next chapter, the narrator of Genesis returns to the story of Joseph. So anyone reading uh, the book of Genesis and then reading Genesis 38 all the way through to the end would be left asking the question, Uh, Why is this chapter right here in the book of Genesis? Uh, Well, first of all, Genesis 38 does begin with the words, and it came about at that time, which makes it clear that the events of Genesis 38 began to take place right after the time that Joseph's brothers had sold Joseph into uh, Egypt. Also, consider uh, for a minute or so why Judah would become so important at this particular juncture. The first three of Jacob's sons through his wife Leah have essentially already disqualified themselves from the rights of firstborn. Reuben, we saw, defiled Jacob's wife Bilhah, and Simeon and Levi who were Jacob's second and third born, slaughtered the men of Shechem, causing Jacob to reject Reuben, Simeon, and Levi for the rights of firstborn in Israel. And you see that being clear as Jacob speaks to them on his deathbed in Genesis 49. In Genesis 37, in the last chapter, we saw Jacob setting his hopes on Joseph, who was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. But now, by the end of Genesis 37, Joseph is gone, and Jacob thinks that he is dead. So as far as Jacob and Judah know, Joseph is out of the picture, which is why the spotlight in Genesis 38 turns to Judah, who was Jacob's fourth oldest son, through his wife, Leah, and why the lineage of Judah looms so important in Genesis 38. 
in Judah's mind, this is his breakthrough moment now that Joseph is out of the way. And he actually seems to feel the pressure of that in this chapter. But as I said at the outset, I I just want to warn you in advance that there is much that we're going to find repulsive in Genesis chapter 38. But it is good for us when we come to chapters like this to remember the counsel of C.S. Lewis, who tells us in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, that when we encounter such things in Scripture, we must, must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent, for it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. If you read through the Bible and you just fixate on the things that you immediately understand and you just skip over and turn away from things that are repellent to you or puzzling to you, you are cheating yourself big time. The Apostle Paul teaches us that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, and that includes Genesis 38. So I hope you will join me this morning in allowing the Lord to reveal to you something through this chapter that you do not know and need to know right now. If you're looking for a hero in Genesis 38, you will find no heroes in this chapter except God. But Genesis 38 will leave us once again marveling at how God works through the compost of human experience and brings about his will to pass and how he takes the mess of human failure and brings about a breakthrough for Judah that causes all things to work together in a way that furthers his redemptive plan actually for the world. God is truly an amazing God who shows his grace to the undeserving. So the title of the message this morning is Judah's Breakthrough. Judah's Breakthrough, and the way we'll frame our study of this chapter is we'll observe five developments in the story of Judah's Breakthrough of Grace. Five developments in the story of Judah's Breakthrough of Grace that God accomplishes in his life. And the first of these developments is this. Let's word it this way. Judah takes a wife for himself and takes Tamar as a wife for his oldest son. Observe what happens beginning in verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. The time that is being referred to here, as I said earlier, is the time of Joseph's sale into slavery and Jacob's grief that followed, thinking that Joseph is dead. And here we're told in the text that about that time, Judah departed from his brothers. And the Hebrew word that is translated departed literally means he descended. This is at least a geographical indication that represents Judah going down in elevation from the highlands of Hebron 
but it probably also depicts Judah as going downhill in a spiritual direction as well. And later verses will bear this out. Uh, verse one tells us that Judah went to visit a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Adulam was a small town about two or three miles northwest of Hebron. And it's while he's in this place that Judah saw with his eyes a particular daughter of a Canaanite man, the man whose name was Shua. And the text says he took her and went in to her. This isn't the most delicate way to describe how a man met a gal and married her, but it gives you some idea of Judah's mindset here. Actually, Judah has no business marrying a Canaanite woman, but he seems governed only by his eyes and by his hormones here. As one commentator says, this was clearly a union based on chemistry rather than principle. Observe what happens after Judah becomes married to this Canaanite woman. Verse uh, 3 the text says, so she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kazib that she bore him. By the time the text of Genesis is over, we will learn that rulers will come forth from Judah. So his lineage is hugely important. And here we see that he has three sons to help guarantee that his lineage will survive and go forward into the future. And I'm sure Judah is feeling really good about this at this point. God had also told Jacob that companies of peoples will come forth from him. And Judah is no doubt hoping uh, that companies of people will descend from him and from these three boys of his. And Judah is so earnest about this that he doesn't want to leave anything to chance. As soon as his oldest son is old enough to marry, Judah swings into action. Observe what happens in verse 6. The text says, Now Judah took a wife for heir, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Evidently, Judah did not wait for his son to find a wife. He went and got a wife for him. I like that, actually. I wish dads could do that today. Imagine Judah proposing to Tamar and saying, will you be the wife of my firstborn son and carry on my legacy with him and she says, yes, I would be happy to. And so after posting the video of the proposal on social media, <laughs> Judah presents Tamar to his son. As for Tamar, we do not know anything about her in terms of her background, but we can safely infer that she was a Canaanite, a Canaanite who will become a pivotal figure in Israel's history. If Judah's lineage is to continue, then one of his three sons will need to have children. And right now, all eyes are on Judah's son, Er, and his new wife, Tamar. Yet it's right here where the wheels start to come off this minivan. 
This brings us to the second development in the story of Judah's breakthrough of grace. Number two, Judah fails to provide Tamar a husband through whom she could have offspring. Judah fails to provide Tamar a husband through whom she could have offspring. Observe what happens in verse 7. The text says, But ere Judah's firstborn was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. So that didn't turn out the way Judah was hoping. We can say that Er erred significantly, so significantly that the Lord took his life. The following verses make it abundantly clear that Er died before he had any children through Tamar, and he didn't just die, but God took his life because he was evil in God's sight. So Judah is now left with a widowed daughter-in-law and with two remaining sons who are still alive and no grandchild who can carry forward the lineage of Judah. This is a concern to Judah. This may not make a whole lot of sense to us with our Western sensibilities, but back in this day, it was the custom that if a man passed away before his wife could give him a child, then his next oldest brother would take that wife and sire a child through her. And that child would then bear the name and all the rights of the brother that had died. This custom would eventually become enshrined in the Old Testament law itself. And we see that in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. In fact, listen to what is said in Deuteronomy 25. The law says, beginning in verse 5, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. Evidently, an early form of this law existed in the sensibilities of Judah's family. And we even find similar laws like this in the surrounding cultures of Judah's day. So consistent with this legal custom, Judah approaches his second son, Onan, and calls upon him to do his duty. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Judah wants Onan to take Tamar as his wife and to sire a son through Tamar so that that son could take on the name of heir and receive the status and the privileges as if he was the firstborn son of Judah himself. Does that make sense? Onan could have responded to his father by refusing to marry Tamar. If he refused, he would have been shamed by the family. In fact, if you continue reading in Deuteronomy 25, if a man did refuse to do what the law is asking, 
he wouldn't be killed, but the woman would be able to take his shoe off and slap him in the face with his shoe. Um, and he's forever known as the man whose shoe was removed. So that Onan, I, uh, I guess, could have refused to do what his dad is asking, and he would have been shamed by the family, but he could survive that shame. But instead of refusing, Onan agrees to marry Tamar and essentially covenants to help her have a child who could bear his dead brother's name. Yet look at the way he thinks and the way that he behaves in verse 9. The text says Onan knew that the offspring would not be his So when he went to his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. From the language here, we see that it's not so much that Onan did not want to have a child. In particular, he did not want to have a child who would not be his. He didn't want to give offspring to his brother. And why would he not want to give his brother an offspring? Think about it. Onan is the second born of Judah. His older brother is dead, which means that Onan is now the recipient of the status and privileges of firstborn. It means that the larger inheritance of firstborn will now come to Onan And the only threat to that happening now would be if Tamar were to have a son who takes on the name of Onan's older brother, heir. So Onan is thinking, why would I want to rob myself of the rights and inheritance of firstborn by helping my brother's wife have a son who will bear my brother's name and take that inheritance away from me? So Onan's strategy is that he will pretend that he is doing his duty while at the same time keeping Tamar from becoming pregnant. To put it simply, R. Kent Hughes is correct when he says that Onan refused his duty because he wanted the rights of firstborn for himself. We're told in verse 9 that Onan wasted his seed on the ground. And this is not just something that he did on one occasion, but on multiple occasions. Actually, we can translate the language in this way. Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground. This is not a mutually agreed upon birth control practice for a season agreed upon between Onan and Tamar. But this is Onan exploiting the opportunity to enjoy sexual pleasure with Tamar, but refusing to do so in a way that would raise up an offspring who would bear his brother's name. So essentially, Onan's sin entails at least four things. Number one, deception or marriage under false pretenses. He had agreed to marry her to help her raise up an offspring, and he obviously deceived her in that. Number two, a greedy desire for the rights of firstborn. Number three, the selfish exploitation of Tamar for sexual pleasure. And number four, defrauding Tamar of the seed that he had covenanted to give to her. 
So observe what happens in verse 10. The text says, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. Wow. Evidently, God cares about a man behaving in a sexually honest way with his wife. And he slays Onan for his selfishness and dishonesty. So now among Jacob's three sons, two have died and only one remains. And the one that remains is not yet old enough to give away in marriage. The situation is looking less and less promising for Judah. And by the way, that red cross mark should be over Onan, not over Shelah. So correct that in your mind. So the situation is looking less and less promising for Judah. And it's the wickedness of his sons that is chipping away at his legacy. Imagine how Tamar must be feeling at this point. With the highest of hopes, she's gone into two marriages. And both of her husbands have been killed by the Lord. And she is still without a child Imagine how Judah is now feeling. He's given two of his sons to Tamar and they both are dead. Judah has only one son left and he's not feeling very eager to give that third son now to Tamar. In fact, observe what Judah does in verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. So what's he saying there? He's telling Tamar to go home to her father's house until his youngest son, Shelah, is old enough to take her as his wife and to do his duty and help her to raise up an offspring. Observe, though, how verse 11 describes Judah's thinking in giving her this counsel. The text says, for he thought I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. In other words, Judah is starting to think that Tamar is bad luck. And he actually never intends to give his third son to her. He's just trying to get her out of the way, back to her father's house and buy some time. And hope that his promise will just fizzle in her memory. Future events show that he never did give his son Shelah to Tamar, even after Shelah comes of age and is old enough to marry her. But Tamar right now does not know that this is Judah's thinking at this point. His counsel to her sounds reasonable. So verse 11 ends with the words, so Tamar went and lived in her father's house where she would Live now as a widow and wait patiently until Judah's third son is old enough to take her as his wife and help her to produce an offspring. So observe what happens beginning in verse 12. The text says, now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. So now Judah himself is a widower and his family is now down to himself and his son Shelah and a widowed daughter-in-law who is living in her own father's house as 
a widow. This is just a sad picture. Started off with great hope, and now they're down to this. Verse 12 continues. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. The shearing season for sheep back in this day was a time of celebration and a time of people coming together, a time of feasting. So it would be a nice change of pace for Judah after mourning the loss of his wife. But while Judah is on his way, observe what happens beginning in verse 13. The text says, It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. So we're told here in no uncertain terms that Shelah is now grown up, that Judah never gave Shelah to Tamar as a husband. He promised Tamar that he would do this, but he lied. Even when he made the promise, he had no intention of being true to his word. So Tamar is left a childless widow. She has no lineage. She has no son to carry on her original husband's name and receive the inheritance and privileges of firstborn from Judah And she will have no part in the coming nation that God had promised to Jacob. And she has a father-in-law who doesn't care that she be provided with all of these things that would come with giving birth to a child. We'll see in the coming verses that when Tamar wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enayim, she was doing something that a prostitute in this day would do. She's dressing herself as a prostitute would. And we'll see in the coming verses that her aim is going to be to seduce Judah and to try to have a child through him. If Judah will not give her his third son, then Tamar will try to conceive a child in her womb through Judah himself. And the sad thing about this, as you read between the lines of the text, as many commentators do, is that Tamar devises this strategy of playing the harlot only because she thinks it will work with Judah, which means that she must know something about Judah's less than savory habits. The whole picture here is sad, and it's only going to get sadder. This brings us to the next development in the story of Judah's breakthrough of grace. Number three, Tamar tricks Judah into lying with her and causing her to conceive. Observe what happens beginning in verse 15. When Judah saw her, so here she is at the gate and um, Judah sees her. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot for she had covered her face So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. The implication is, had he known, 
he would not have done what he is about to do. Observe how Tamar responds to Judah's propositioning of her. Verse 16, the text says, And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. This plays perfectly into Tamar's hands. Tamar is not the least bit interested in getting this goat from Judah. She's more interested in getting items from Judah that can be used later to identify him. So observe what she does in verse 17. She said, moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Judah's seal could have been a signet ring, but more likely it was some kind of cylinder object that hung on a cord around his neck, as was common in this day, a cylinder that bore some kind of image and letters. And when signing a document, Judah would take that cylinder off from around his neck and roll it over some soft wax or clay that was on the document. And the impression would serve as something like our signatures do today. The New American Standard translators translate the same Hebrew word as signet ring in verse 25, but it's actually the same word as the word that's used here in verse 18. So it should be translated in verse 25 in the same way as seal. And that's how we'll understand it when we get to verse 25. As for Judah's staff, uh, his staff would have featured some carvings that would distinguish it as clearly belonging to him. So these are very personal uh, items. They're signature items. And Tamar's request for these signature items sounds reasonable to Judah. Verse 18 continues, so he gave them to her and went in to her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. And obviously she returns to her normal life, living as a widow in her father's house. Only now she's pregnant. Judah knows better than to behave the way that he has just behaved. But you know what? He's used to getting by with things. He and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery, and it seems like they got by with that and convinced their dad that he was devoured by a wild animal. He's been breaking his promise to give his youngest son to Tamar, and it seems like he's been getting by with that. She's just a powerless woman. What claim could she ever make against him, a powerful man? And now here he sleeps with a prostitute and assumes he's going to get by with that as well. But he does want his signature items back. So he wants to pay this woman the goat that he had promised her so that he can get the items back. So observe what happens in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. 
He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enaim? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Evidently, Judah and his friend assumed that the woman that Judah had slept with was a religious prostitute working for some Canaanite deity. That's what Judah thought he was doing. And that's what they're looking for here. We don't know much about Judah's friend other than his name and where he's from. But how sad that Judah is sending this Canaanite friend on a mission to pay off a prostitute that he had slept with. Judah is a great grandson of Abraham through whom God had promised to bless all the nations and the families and the peoples of the earth. Yet Judah is using this Canaanite friend for this shameful purpose. I'm pretty sure that this friend of Judah never would have approached Judah, at least at this point of his life, and said, you know, I've noticed something different about you, Judah. Tell me about Jehovah. Anyway, try as he might, Judah's friend cannot find the prostitute anywhere. So observe what happens in verse 22. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. As John MacArthur says, it was not good for one's reputation to keep asking for the whereabouts of a prostitute. Judah is a little worried about that. He doesn't want to look too hard and ask around too much. He doesn't want to become a laughingstock in the community. So he quickly decides to just let the matter go. He tried to find her and pay her, but to no avail. So let's just move on and forget about it, he thinks. So the narrative at this juncture features some unresolved tension. Judah's daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant. Judah doesn't know it's her that he has had relations with. And Tamar has his signature items that could prove to anyone interested that he is the one who slept with her. And Judah is obviously in a terrible place spiritually. Observe what happens next, which is the next development in this story of Judah's breakthrough of grace. Number four, Judah repents of his failure to provide Tamar the husband that he promised. He's going to repent in the verses that we come to of his failure to provide Tamar the husband that he promised. Look at what happens in verse 24. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. In the mind of Judah, Tamar has not simply been guilty of harlotry. She's been guilty of harlotry while being pledged to another man who was Judah's third son. And Judah is so outraged that he says, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah is such a righteous man of justice, isn't he? 
He's so offended that Tamar would be involved in harlotry, never mind the fact that he himself had slept with the harlot three months prior. Did the irony of that even cross his mind? I don't know, but his actions here show that it's all too easy for any of us to judge others for sins that we are guilty of also. Judah is so quick to judge Tamar for being unfaithful to his third son, whom she was essentially betrothed to, when in fact Judah had not been faithful to give his third son to her. What a hypocrite. And what a low point Judah is at right now. In fact, I think we can say that a hastiness to pronounce judgment on others for their sins is one of the surest signs that a person has reached the bottom of their own depravity. Just like King David did right before he was busted by Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12. And Judah's about to get busted too. At Judah's demand, his representatives get Tamar and they start to bring her out so that Judah's sentence against her can be enforced that probably would have involved stoning and then burning her. But while they're doing that, while they're bringing her out, look at what happens in verse 25. The text says it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose seal and cords and staff are these. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. How true it is that what goes around comes around. In the last chapter, Judah and his brothers deceptively dip Joseph's tunic in blood and send it to their father and say, please examine to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. And here Tamar is sending Judah's signature items to him and saying, please examine and see whose seal and cords and staff are these. The irony here is so thick. The items are put before Judah and he looks at them and he is mortified to discover that the items are his. Talk about busted. Judah is left profoundly shamed and humbled, and it is here that we begin to see a change happening in Judah. Observe Judah's reaction in verse 26. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Judah's statement here is so short that it's easy to miss the depth of change that must be occurring in him. This is the equivalent of King David saying, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he said in Second Samuel twelve thirteen. That's not a lot of words that King David spoke when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. But those few words reflected a seismic change that God was accomplishing in the heart of David. And God's doing the same thing in Judah's heart here. In making this admission, Judah 
saying that she is more righteous than I, Judah is not saying that Tamar's actions were righteous, but he is saying that she was more in the right than he was. They're both wrong, but she is more in the right than he was. That's what he's saying. He's actually admitting that her sin of playing the harlot, as awful as that is, in order to get him to sleep with her, was actually more righteous than his own sin of withholding his third son from her. He's publicly admitting that between the two of them, he is the greater sinner of the two. He doesn't hire an attorney who can put a positive spin on what he's done and what has happened. No, he's like, I am the greater sinner in this situation. Let it be known. Unlike many people today, Judah doesn't make any excuses for his sin. He doesn't blame Tamar for seducing him. He doesn't say, yeah, I may have sinned, but Tamar's sin of harlotry is so much worse than mine. Look at what she did. She tricked me. He doesn't go there. Instead, he looks at his own failure that lay behind her actions, and he publicly admits his failure to keep his promise to give his third son to her. This is a good thing that we see being manifested in Judah. At the end of verse 26, we're told that he did not have relations with her again. The implication is that Judah takes Tamar now into his household, but he's never intimate with her again. A fact which seems to represent his conviction that what had happened between them earlier should have never happened. So Tamar is now in Judah's household and carrying his offspring Six months go by and the time of delivery arrives. And this leads us to the final development in the story of Judah's breakthrough of grace. Judah right now deserves nothing but judgment. But look at how good God is going to be. Look at what happens beginning in verse 27. It came about at the time that she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. So instead of just giving Judah one son, God gives him two. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. Just when we thought this story couldn't get crazier. One of the Infants in the womb, hand protrudes and the midwife is tying a scarlet thread around the hand saying, this is the one that came out first. If a woman did give birth to twins back in this day, it was totally normal and common practice for a midwife to tie some kind of ribbon around the first child that came out so that it would be beyond dispute which child was born first. What's unusual here is that it's just the child's hand that comes out. The midwife assumes that this is the child who's going to be born first, so she ties the scarlet thread around the baby's wrist. But then the craziest thing happens. Look at verse 29. 
But it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. And they would know this because the child who fully came out first did not have the scarlet thread around his hand. And observe what Tamar's midwife says in verse 29. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Doesn't make a lot of sense to us, uh, but uh, when we look at it in the English, but I'll give you a literal translation here. Understand that the midwife is not speaking to Tamar here, but speaking to the baby. And we can literally translate her as saying, what? You have broken through for yourself a breakthrough. So he was named Breakthrough, which is what the name Perez means, which accurately describes what Perez did in beating out his brother and being the first to break forth from the womb of his mother. As for his brother, observe what happens in verse 30, and this is how the chapter ends. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. So all in all, Judah started out this chapter or early in this chapter with three sons. Two were killed by the Lord because of their wickedness. Judah gets humbled and broken by the Lord. And on the other side of that breaking, Judah now has three sons again with whom he can face the future with. And later, Old Testament revelation reveals that all three of Jacob's existing sons now will have descendants who are a part of the nation of Israel. Without question, God has been exceedingly good to Judah. As we wrap things up this morning, let's ponder a few uh, thoughts. First of all, we see in this story uh, just reminders of the capacity of people for sin and their fallenness. And it's so sad. Uh, this, what happens in this chapter is difficult to talk about in polite company. And I consider you polite company. Um, this chapter does not leave any of us feeling really good. Um, and if you're feeling weirded out by some of the things that have happened in this chapter, you actually should be. But we should thank God for chapters like this that remind us of the depravity of the human condition. I appreciate the fact that the Bible does not shrink from announcing to us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that it doesn't shrink from telling us the real life stories in the Old and New Testament that show us how true that is. Genesis 38 is one such story, and studying a chapter like this will help to prepare you for some of the headlines in the news that you have to read from day to day, and it will prepare you for the brokenness that you encounter even in the church and maybe in your own life as well. In his book, Spectacular Sins, John Piper says that what we need today is the Bible and he says, I mean, the whole Bible, 
with its blood and guts and sin and horrors and all of it under the massive hand of God. And that's literally what we have given to us in Genesis 37 that we studied last Sunday and Genesis 38 that we're looking at today. We need to know the depths of sin that people can descend to. And we need to know that everything that people do takes place under the massive hand of a righteous God of justice. We're reminded in this chapter that the wages of sin is death. We see Judah's son, Er, being slain by God for his wickedness. And we see a second son, Onan, being killed by God because of his sin against Tamar. These are great, great grandsons of Abraham who are struck dead because of their sins. These are great grandsons of Isaac, who was blessed of the Lord and grandsons of Jacob, who was blessed of the Lord and received revelations from God. Yet these two grandsons of Jacob are slain by God because of their sins. And every young person in this room should take a sober lesson from what happens to these two young men. Just because your parents and your grandparents are Christians who love the Lord, do not think for a minute that you can live as you please and that things will automatically end up okay for you. Don't trifle with sin and don't presume upon the grace of God. Apart from God's mercy, the wages of sin is death. And if you don't choose wisely, you can just as easily make shipwreck of your life and fall under God's judgment, just as Er and Onan do in this chapter. At the same time, we see God's amazing grace in this chapter. We see his grace toward Judah, even though Judah did not deserve God's grace any more than his sons did. God's grace toward Judah, though, is not a painless grace. It's a painful grace. It is God's grace that causes Judah to face a reckoning for his sin against Tamar. It is God's grace that causes Judah's sin to be exposed leaving him ashamed of his actions. It is the grace of God at work in his heart that causes Judah to admit that he is the worst sinner in this situation between him and Tamar. And God is not done with such reckonings in Judah's life, you must know. In the coming chapters, Judah will be facing a reckoning for his sin from two decades prior when he sold Joseph into slavery. And when that reckoning comes, we will see Judah and his brothers on their faces. And we will see Judah demonstrating humility and love in a way that reflects spiritual growth that God had been accomplishing in his life. In the end, Judah will experience forgiveness and he will experience generosity from Joseph, the brother that he had sold, and it will be Judah who will lead Jacob and his family to Egypt to go and live under Joseph's gracious provision. Here in Genesis 38, God gives to Judah two additional sons to replace the two sons that he lost because of their wickedness. 
And through his breakthrough son, Perez, Judah will go on to become the ancestor of King David and of all the Davidic kings who will reign after him, which is simply astounding. Judah failed as a brother and as a son. He failed as a father and as a father-in-law, yet God sets his love on Judah and turns him into a better man and makes him a great blessing to his larger family and to the whole world for that matter. And we see that turn beginning to happen in Genesis 38. And God has done the same with many people in our church body here at Cornerstone. There are some people in our church that can point to seasons in their life when their actions were as unsavory as what we see in Genesis 38 involving broken promises, sexual sin and hurt to others. Yet God's grace has swooped into their life and God has done a sweet work of grace in the lives of these brothers and sisters. And they're very different people today than they once were by God's amazing grace. Wherever you are at in your journey this morning, never underestimate the power of God's grace to transform you and to change your story into something wonderful. Just because your past and maybe even your present is full of shameful details, that doesn't mean that your story has to end that way. Shameful beginnings do not have to equal shameful endings. Shameful beginnings can lead to wonderful outcomes when we humble ourselves before God and others and place our lives in God's hands. Actually, the good that God pulls out of the mess of Genesis 38 is even greater than what I have told you so far. I told you that Perez, who is born at the end of this chapter, that Perez is the ancestor through whom King David and all the Davidic kings who follow him would come. It's also true that Perez will be the son of Judah through whom Jesus Christ himself will come. When you... Open up your New Testament to the very beginning of the New Testament. Page one, Matthew chapter one, and you begin reading in Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is what you read. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of. And so the lineage continues all the way down to the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate son of Perez the ultimate son of Judah. From Matthew 1, we learn that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, came through Perez. And from Luke chapter 3, verse 33, we learn that Jesus' mother, Mary, descended from Perez. Through all the rot that we see in Genesis 38, God brings a savior for you and for me and for Judah and Tamar, a savior who is infinitely greater and better than Judah and Tamar, a savior who keeps his every promise, a savior who can never be seduced 
or tempted into sin, a Savior who never tempts us to sin, a Savior who is infinitely more righteous than Judah and Tamar and us, yet who bore our sins on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, a Savior who does not call for us to be burned for our sin, but who took the flaming wrath of God upon himself at the cross so that we might be spared that judgment if we would repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. He's even a savior who gives us his Holy Spirit as his pledge, as a guarantee that he will one day give us a heavenly inheritance that will never wane. And this Messiah, this son of Judah, will have no trouble finding us when it comes time to give us what he promised. Imagine being Judah and Tamar right now in heaven. They have to know. They have to know their names are mentioned within the first three verses of our New Testament and the genealogy of the Messiah of the world. How dazzled they must be by the grace of God to produce the greatest of outcomes from one of the most shameful episodes in their life. How blessed Judah will be to hear Jesus Christ in heaven referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. How blessed Judah will be to see his own name actually written on one of the gates of the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12. That's, that's grace. That's amazing Amazing grace. He was such a sinner and God lavishes such grace and honor upon Judah. Teaching us that none of us are ever too sinful. To be recipients of such grace. The God of Judah and the God of Tamar stands ready to do that same work of grace in your life as well. If you have repenting to do, I plead with you to repent of your sins this morning and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and look to him. Stop condemning others for their sins. Stop pointing to others and calling for them to be denounced and judged and start confessing your own sins to God. Call upon the name of Jesus and receive the salvation that he offers to you. And get caught up in the larger story of what God is doing in the world and how he wants to use you in that. And prepare to be amazed at what God can make of you and how God can take your shameful story and turn it into something that is truly and everlastingly wonderful. Isn't God good? Let's, let's pray together. Lord, on some levels, we recoil at what we see in this chapter, but on other levels, we see us. I am no better than Judah, no better than Tamar. I am no more worthy of your grace than they are. No more worthy of your blessing than they were. None of us are. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, but it's a gift of God. 
May we be sobered by your righteousness and justice as we see it executed in this chapter upon sinners. And may we also just be blown away by your sovereign electing grace that we also see manifested in this chapter as you inexplicably chose Judah to be a recipient of your grace and blessed him the way that you did. Those of us who have believed in you, Lord, it's we're just so glad to be in your grace, but may we never presume upon your grace, but cherish it and love you all the more. If there's any, Lord, in this room that either have never believed in you or maybe they have, but they're in a really sordid place in their life right now. And even as they sit here, they're thinking about the things they've done and the things they've looked at and participated in just over the course of this past week. Lord, love them like you love Judah and bring conviction of sin to them as a gift of your grace and call them out of that sin and draw them to Jesus so that they could be transformed, forgiven through his shed blood at the cross and so that their story can be changed by the ultimate story changer who is you from a story of shame and secrecy and hiding and deception to one that is open and transparent and beautiful and wonderful and that redounds for all eternity. Lavish such rescuing grace on many in this room this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you and we just ask that you would receive this offering that we give to you and do much with all that is given for the glory of our precious Lord Jesus in whose name we pray and all God's people said